Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thanks so much for joining us today. Today's topic is the parallel system story with my friend, Matt Sewell. How's it going, Matt? Great, Joe. Thanks for having me. So, Matt, please introduce yourself and your company and where you're calling from today. So, I am Matt Sewell. I'm the CEO of Parallel Systems. Parallel Systems is based in Culver City, just out of, side of Los Angeles. What we're developing is a autonomous battery electric vehicle that uses rail infrastructure to help railroads capture more of the freight market activity that's traditionally been dominated by trucking. So that's a that's a mouthful there. So uh, you said autonomous, meaning I don't have to have a driver. There's no driver. There is there is remote supervision, but but it largely does its own thing. Yeah, what it's but it, when you think about it, autonomous makes more sense on rails than it does on the expressway with the rest of us, right? <laughs> right. I and mean, it's it's absolutely get so much trouble on its own. <laughs> right. It's uh it's ar- very arguably an easier place to start. You know, one of the big advantages is that railroads are a managed network. It's it's almost like air traffic control, but every single bit of activity has their central management of that. And so it makes it makes a lot of the problems that self-driving cars and trucks are up against a lot a lot easier to tackle. We're not randomly encountering other vehicles on the railroad uh, because you have you have dispatching. Yeah, no one cuts you off there. No, no, no worry. There's going to be no uh, n- none of those emergency braking situations. So you also mentioned electric. So when we were prepping, I was like electric. What do regular trains use diesel? Because I honestly, you see them, and I just actually talked to. Uh, Brian Gorton from Conrail, and I never asked, what do regular trains take? Yeah, yeah. So the trains here in the U.S. are diesel electric. So what's happening is there's actually a diesel power plant that's generating electricity that then powers the motors that drive the wheels. So all the rail we already have in the U.S. is electric. It's just that instead of powering it by diesel, we're, we're using batteries. Excellent, excellent. So you're autonomous, electric. You said something about batteries. So what is the battery way? So the battery can be quite heavy. I, I won't give you specific numbers, but it depends on you know how big we're, we're, we're building it. But because of the weight capacity of rail, we have kind of a luxury in electrification compared to trucking. Trucking has a very big weight sensitivity, and this is one of the challenges with electrifying long-range trucking because each, each wheel, each axle can carry almost the entire weight of a Class 8 truck. We have, we have the advantage of being able to, to use chemistries that are not that lightweight, but are higher performing, longer cycle life, and not as not as not as uh, lightweight though. Excellent. So, so we'll get back to this autonomous electric with the battery in a, in just a minute. But first, tell us a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Give us some sense of you as a young person. Yeah, I grew up in a small town in Connecticut called Colchester. I did cross country and track. Oh, very I nice. School in high school there. And um, I also got really into mountain biking too. It was a rural area, so there's a lot of access to trails. So I did I, in the in the the, the fall I do cross country, in the spring I do track, in the summer I would race mountain bikes. Now mountain bikes like the motorized ones or the uh... no pedal. Okay, good, good pedal. Yeah, I'll tell you, my buddies were going out doing that, and they were like, "Come on, Joe, you got to bring your. We haven't come with us in a long time." I was like, 
it's because there's stumps there, man. <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to kill myself. That That is a young man's sport. <laughs> yeah, I still do it a little bit. Not not to the level uh, I used to, but uh, it's it's fun. And sometimes you do get hurt, though. Yeah, so where is Colchester? I mean, it's in Connecticut, but what's the next big city? It's in New London County. So it's kind of like the, the southeast corner of the state. So what big city are you near? Probably the biggest city would be Hartford. I mean, you're in a small, you know, northeast small. <laughs> state. You know, you, every everything is like within two hours. Yeah. A lot, lot of Hallmark movies shot there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not in my hometown, but, uh, you know, we're pretty close to like halfway between Boston and New York, if you want to visualize it at that level. Actually, you know, since we're talking about rail, it was a trail at the time, but there was an abandoned railroad kind of in, in our community that was called the airline rail because it used to be kind of like as the crow would fly between New York and Boston. Yeah, it's interesting because um, I, I just listened to a, a book. Actually, I didn't even finish it. It was about Cornelius Vanderbilt, and he grew up on Long Island. And that that trains was like one of the first big industries. And it was just kind of like the internet in in the way that it connected this country, obviously physically rather than by communication systems. And uh, man, that was... Uh, crazy because people would be building rails and then later on those those rail lines would go out of business and you have these abandoned tracks. I know here in Michigan we have abandoned tracks like that where they're uh, hiking trails and uh, bike trails. So I know you'd like to put some more rail on those. But um, so where did you end up going to school? Tell us a little bit about your education. So I ended up going to Northwestern in Chicago. Fancy, fancy. That's an awesome school. Yeah, thank you. I I was pretty convinced at a kind of an early age that I was going to do engineering and you know, Northwestern ended up being a great fit for me. And and when I was there, I got really involved with some, you know, extracurricular projects like like we did solar car. So I, I helped put together one of the first teams there and we were the first ones to successfully qualify to race. We did not do very well in the race, but I think just qualifying for the race, you know, those who've done it realize just what a hard goal that is to to achieve. Right. And solar car is a big race, but so a lot of universities participate, right? I know university, we were talking offline, University of Michigan does it. I know my nephew was real active and he was at Michigan. And uh, so how many schools race in that? You know, going from memory, I think this, this was, this was 2001 that we did this race and, and it was Chicago to Los Angeles along Route 66. I want to say there's maybe 25 teams or so, give or take. Yeah, that did it. <laughs> yeah, it's a big deal. So you studied electrical over there? Yeah, electrical engineering. All right. So what was your first gig out of school? So really, I think the first gig I had was was actually doing a co-op program. And so this was this is one of the reasons I chose Northwestern because they had such a strong co-op program. Uh, I was working for a company called Moog, which is probably not a household name for most people. They're 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 very big industrial and aerospace component supplier. And I, I know through, you know, their own growth, they've taken on more and more systems work, but it was a really, I think, impactful experience for me because they had this philosophy that, you know, to be a good engineer, you really need to know how stuff goes together. So my first time co-oping with them, this is, you know, this was a program that you, you, you go there for the summer, you take on some projects, you go back to school, you come back another semester. And so you end up having about a year and a half of experience, but the first the first time I was there, you know, it was pretty early in, you know, my academic training, but what they wanted me to do is like really get immersed in, in the manufacturing production side, because, you know, their, their stance was, 
you know, to design good stuff, good products, you got to know how they go together. You don't want to design something and then throw it to the fence. And then right, production is right. telling you like, this is, this is terrible. We can't actually build this. So I was, you know, I was like soldering, like, you know, resistors and stuff to circuit boards. And the technicians were like teaching me how to be good at that. I was, I was working this uh, surface mount technology, like pick and place. If you've ever, you know, anyone's ever seen those, you're, you're, this is like how electronics are built at high speed. You're picking like chip resistors off of reels and put it through the reflow oven and then doing testing. So it was really, you know, really a great start, I think, to get some practical training about what are good practices for how. Yeah, sounds like how it. To, yeah. Yeah. How to, how to design stuff that's producible. So where'd you go after that? So I ended up going to a big aerospace company after, after I graduated, Lockheed Martin. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, that was... That was my impression when I accepted the offer. And then when I got there, you know, this, this is also around like uh, 2001. So this is like when we had like the, the post.com economic meltdown. Um, well, and then 9-11. So, <laughs> yeah, 9-11 too. I was there for 9-11. But they, you know, a lot of the contracts that they thought they were going to win, they didn't win. So there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of work to do. So, and then because of just the state of the economy, there weren't a lot of people hiring. So Really, I was only there for about a year and found my way to, to Los Angeles to go to grad school at USC. Oh, wow. Another another blue chip school. So what did you study for your master's? So I did electrical engineering as well. A lot of a lot of my focus was on control systems. And what do control systems do? Control systems are the systems that allow systems outputs to be managed. It's kind of like when you're driving a car, for example... You know, you're closing a loop because you're working the steering wheel and the accelerator so that your car is is traveling a straight line at a safe rate of speed. And so in control systems, you're developing uh, systems like electronics or software that are doing the work that you're doing in that case and, and allowing the car to operate. Or you know, it could be something much simpler like a servo, uh, like a motor. I send a velocity command to it. That, that control loop is managing the velocity of it. You were doing it for planes though, right? Well, it was, it was, it was um, you know, general coursework and controls. They took some specific, you know, satellite and aircraft related, you know, coursework, but. Anything but with trains? Not trains. No, <laughs> not trains. So what'd you do? Where'd you go after you graduated with your master's? So I, I had met some people while I was there that pulled me into Northrop Grumman space technology used to be TRW and didn't work on controls, worked on high power lasers instead. Man, you are in the high tech. So how long did you stay there? I was there for about three and a half years, but but someone I'd met also at USC uh, was like, hey, there's this new company, SpaceX. I think you'd really love it here. I'm like, no, nah, oh, no, nah, I'm wow. good. I'm good right now. <laughs> but I, I ended up working in a program in Northrop Grumman and you know it was it wasn't working, it wasn't moving at the pace that I really wanted. And I just found myself kind of reflecting. I was like, what would I say I've done the last six months? And when I couldn't immediately answer that, I was like, I think it's time to look at other other options. So then you went to SpaceX? Yeah. So I, I took the call. I mean, in hindsight, you know, so my friend Phil, you know, he'd been, he'd been pestering me for a couple of years and this is still like 2006, right? So, so SpaceX is, was started 2002. So it was like very, very early days still. But I, I remember I wrote him, I was like, hey, is SpaceX still hiring? Which in hindsight now is like an absurd question because, you know, the company was like 100 people right. back then. And now it's like, I don't know, like 10,000. I get these confused. Is SpaceX Elon Musk's company? That's right. So did you meet the big boss? Oh, yeah. 
All right. So how'd you like working with Elon Musk? I, I, I hear he's done all right for himself since you left. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was great. I mean, it was it was what I wanted. I wanted a challenge. I wanted to be able to sink my teeth into something. And, and he certainly delivered on that. We had a great time trying to get the Falcon 1 rocket into orbit. Super exciting time to, to be part of that first. Oh, that's like you. You will always look back and be able to talk about that that experience. It's it's funny. I I I'm an automotive guy. I spent much of my t- career in different product teams. Uh, you know, either at Ford or Chrysler, different companies. And sometimes those teams are so big that you're working on one little aspect of the of the product. And and I remember my uh, friends would say, "Well, what do you work on?" I was like, "I work on this little." this little handle or this little, I'm working on making sure these wires don't get too hot or move into the engine compartment. And it just sounds when you're done with it, it just sounds so small. And then later on, it's like, what'd you work? I was like, ah, I worked on the Wrangler, the Jeep Wrangler. Oh, you, you're the engineer on the Wrangler. Yeah. One of, you know, a couple thousand. Right? But I yeah. imagine being at, at SpaceX, the nature of the, that you had to really have a big hand in it. Must have been gratifying. Yeah. You know, sometimes they didn't realize it in the moment, but absolutely. I mean, because the company was so small, you were doing pretty much everything, everything it took to get us to the next milestone. Yeah. I have a daughter who works at one of the vaccine companies, and I told her this big expansion of the vaccine stuff. And, you know, it's been crazy, of course. And uh, I said, and, and difficult. I said, but in retrospect, you know, 50 years from now, she'll be telling her, grandkids. Yeah. I worked on those vaccines. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a cool, cool thing to be able to say. So when and why did you start parallel systems? Yeah. I, I ended up being at SpaceX for 13 years, so it was quite, quite the adventure, but really I just, you know, which kind of drove each, each of my career changes was, was this need for further growth. And so I, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say something like we, you know, we conquered space travel. So that was, that was done and I wanted to move on, but I just, I just grew really hungry to do something else. And I had done largely airspace my entire career. And so I was just really looking for something that was an alternative to that. So I, I left and the, the purpose of leaving was to kind of figure out what was next. And my, my hunch was that it would be something transportation related. It would be something clean tech related but I wasn't sure exactly what. And I ended up spending some time with a former former colleague from SpaceX, Brian Ignat, and also spent some time with John Howard. And, and Brian, John, and I, uh, as well as Ben Stabler, ended up being the founders of the company. But you know, Brian, John, and I, in the early days, we started talking about rail. And it was this discovery process. You know, We, we knew it was, it was energy efficient, but we weren't exactly sure what to do with that observation. And, um, there was several months, you know, before we even formed the company of just, of just learning about the industry, you know, so many basic questions we had, we had to get answers to, and we ended up bringing in, you know, uh, experts, you know, former executives from, from the rail industry to help, help us understand. And it started to really come into focus is like, okay, rail is very energy efficient, but rails, Rail is very limited by what markets they can serve because of the nature of their operations. Right. Where the tracks are, right? Where the tracks are, but even the nature of like what, what activity they can support. Right. And it's be high volume. Yeah. You, it's, it's, not, it's not an LTL or a truckload type thing. It, it has to be 
hundreds of cars, right? <laughs> right. And going a long distance too, because, because if you're not going a long distance, just the drayage costs will, will just make it not worth their while. And so rule of thumb in the rail industry is you don't do intermodal unless you're going at least 500 miles. And on the West coast, I think that's, that's, you know, in practice, it's really, there's really not much intermodal that's less than a thousand miles. Right. Right. When we were talking a little bit, when we we're prepping, it's uh, fascinating to me how, you know, I've said it when I was driving through on the expressway and there's so many trucks and I was, I made the trip from Milwaukee to Detroit. You got to drive right through Chicago, right through Gary, Indiana, which I, those are, it's like the truck capital of earth, right? I felt like I'm the only one not driving a truck and drivers are all doing their job, but it's just, it's a little nerve wracking. And I remember I've said this many times and they've had a trip a million times because I family in Milwaukee is got to be nice if they have, were had their own separate road. Well, they kind of do. It's the rail. So you think of a, a driver, truck driver, he's got one track, one tractor, one trailer. You go over to the rail, they've got what, 200 cars, 150 cars. I don't know what the longest one is, but with one tractor in effect. Yeah. And it's much more cost. I mean, much more, much cleaner for the environment, which we're all looking for. And obviously it's safer. It's off of the, it's off of the expressway. So, so you don't have to, the drivers don't have to worry about us, us pesky, pesky uh, consumers playing with their phones or the radio. And so there's some real advantages to rail as it is right now. Yeah. Yeah. One of them that you just touched on is this idea of, of variable capacity. So like if, you know, with trucking, if you need to move more freight, you need to find more drivers, but with rail, you know, one of the advantages they have is that you don't need to go find necessarily another engineering conductor to move more freight. You need to build a longer train. But trains, you know, one of the limitations for them, though, is that to have truck competitive unit economics, they do need to be long. Uh, because the locomotive, you know, it's it's pretty expensive thing to buy, but it's also expensive thing to maintain and operate. Uh, and then you have the crew that goes in it. And what you need to do is amortize the cost of that locomotive and crew over a long train. And that's, and that's what's required to have a price point that, that is either matching or beating trucks. It needs to be in that neighborhood. And so when trains get very, very short, they get very, very expensive. Right. Yep. And, you know, it, it's also interesting. I just talked to Brian Gordon from Conrail. We use um, trains in certain, certain uh, areas that I don't know. I don't know that other approaches are particularly even economically viable. So, you know, when you hear they shut off that pipeline in Canada, it, there's some people I think believe, I've, I've had friends say this, yeah, that's good. We're not using that that fossil fuel. I was like, dude, they're pumping it out of the ground. <laughs> We're going to use it. It's just not going by pipeline. It can go by boat sometimes. It can go by pipeline, which we just talked about. It can go by truck, which I don't know. See, the tr problem with that is the truck is driving down the expressway with us, right? Um, but a lot of it, a lot of it goes by rail, right? Yeah. Yeah. That is not, you know, that is not something we're specifically looking to address right now, but but it, but rail often plays a, a very big role in that. And, and my understanding is, you know, if, if there's a long-term, you know, long-term need to move this, ultimately what happens is that they'll build a pipeline, right? You know, they'll, they'll start by moving it by rail, but then if, if the, the need is continuous, usually the economics will justify building a pipeline in the long run. Yep. So you and your, your friends, and where'd you meet these guys at? We all know each other from SpaceX. 
So you guys all met at SpaceX and you're all sitting around saying, we, we got to find something. Did you already know it was going to be rail before you quit? No, no, absolutely not. So you're all, you all quit and now you're in a conference room or meeting at a coffee shop or a bar and saying, what should we work on? Yeah, we were, we saw rail as, as, you know, being energy efficient and, and, you know, what that means is that for a unit of freight going a certain distance, it takes less energy to move it by rail than it does by truck. It's about 25% the energy to move it by rail versus truck. And the reason for that is, is not because of, of how it's powered. This is, this is one thing that's been kind of an education for me is that I think some of the, the, the people in the public don't have misconceptions about what it means to be energy efficient. You know, some people think it was because you have this big locomotive, that's what makes it locom- that's, that's what makes it energy efficient. But it's, it's actually just the physics. It's the physics of lower rolling resistance because of steel wheels on rail, but also because it's a dedicated mode of transportation. And so you think about it, you know, these, a train, a locomotive pulling these rail cars, it's almost like trucks are, are drafting off each other on the highway, right? right? Cause you, you get very close together. So it's actually, even though you look at a, a train, you're like, you know, that, that is not aerodynamic. There's no word to give here for being aerodynamic, but it's actually more aerodynamic than a convoy of individual trucks. But you can't, you can't do that on a highway, right? You can't, I mean, people can dream of it and maybe you can do it at a small scale, but you certainly can't do it at that scale. But it's because it's that dedicated mode that you can do that. So, so it's, it's energy efficient because of those main reasons. And, and it, it, it really has little to do with the specific implementation, like how it's powered. It's just less rolling resistance, less aerodynamic drag. So when you guys were putting together, put your heads together in this, you and how many partners? It was, it was myself and three others in the early days. So when you first sat down, did you guys say, well, let's figure something out and then, um, or, or let's come up with a plan and then go get funding? Or did you bootstrap this or how did this work? Yeah. In the early days, it was, you know, the questions was like, could we make a locomotives battery electric? But then it was be- when we were doing the math, like it became really apparent that the real opportunity here is just get more stuff to rail because, you know, we talk about decarbonization. You know, a lot of the a lot of the focus is let's just take X and make it electric. The reality is is that our grid itself is not clean, and, and the people who are really paying attention like point this out. It's like you know, I've got an electric truck or electric car. Is it really clean? The answer is no. Like in most cases, you're charging it from right electricity right. that is not being generated. You know, by yeah. by windmills. It's it's being generated by power plants that still use fossil fuels. You know, there's a shift happening from coal to natural gas, so it is getting cleaner. And directionally, it's the right thing to do. But when you when you do that that correction, that our grid itself is not clean. This is why it's so important that uh, if you really want to make an impact on this, you just have to use less energy. So if you use less energy, then you're making a bigger dent in that CO two footprint. So yeah, we went through all this analysis of of rail and truck, and the conclusion was we need to figure out how to get more stuff to rail. Like that's the bottom line. And it's almost incidental that what we're building is battery electric. Like our our stance from the early days when we started to really, you know, discover and define what the problem and opportunity was, is like you need to figure out how to address those operational limitations of what markets rail can serve. And and by the by the way, we're gonna make it battery electric. So it's not, you know, our 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 what we're trying to do is not go replace trains and make them battery powered trains. Like we think keep operating those trains, but let's augment 
those operations with this alternative vehicle that can capture some of these like drays, you know, that, that you've seen in Chicago and exist around ports. That, that's what we're after is get more stuff to rail. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You mentioned the uh, electric cars. So I'm in Michigan and, um, you know, electric cars were discussed forever, you know, and, and and then Tesla really, you know, did a great job on on bringing it to life. And, I, and the big three are doing their projects. I can't speak to how all well they're all going, but I think I think the the big advantage at some point to electric vehicles will be that they're autonomous and that potentially you won't buy a car because most of the time, if you own a car, it's not, you're not using it. So I could see at some point them saying, not only are we using electric vehicles, but there's 30% less cars on the road because like my car, it's wintertime here. I don't use it every damn day. I work from home. So if my car drove off and picked somebody else up and worked all day in Uber or whatever it does, I don't care. Or if I, I really didn't even own the car, if it was just like there was transportation systems that I paid a monthly for. Yeah. I don't do the maintenance on it. And, and by, by the way, for there, those of us who are older, they're probably going, oh, no, 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 no. I need my own car. <laughs> like, you, do you really? Um, if somebody said you're never going to have to put gas in that car, you're never going to have to do the maintenance, and it's 300 bucks a month, and you own a piece of, you'll always have a ride. <laughs> yeah, I, I understand where that emotion comes from. But, you know, being in this industry, you know, transportation where the economics matter a lot. Right. You know, it makes you very aware of that reality you just pointed out. It's like the utilization of the average car is terrible. It spends the vast majority of its life just sitting parked somewhere. And and that's, you know, autonomy unlocks so many possibilities of driving utilization higher. Trucks, cars, rail. I think also if you look at congestion in cities, a lot of the congestion in big cities, even the small cities you're by, is the number of people looking for parking. Um, it's it's like more than 50% of people looking for parking spots. If we parking lots didn't exist because cars dropped you off and dropped you off at Home Depot and then took off and drove around for 20 minutes and came back and got you, we don't have to have those giant parking lots, especially in congested cities where that might, you know, we might program to say there is no parking here. There's just drop off. So, so I think that kind of thinking, you know, you mentioned just moving more to the rails. I love what, when I first saw, I think I heard about you guys in Freight Waves. I think you, was there an article about, it was an article. Yeah, I think we had, we had an article and then I think there's a Q&A that was a follow-up article about us. Well, that my first thought was how much more can we do with rail? Because it, it's just, it, it's an older technology that many of us just kind of go, yeah, if you want your stuff to get there slower, use a train. <laughs> It's cheaper. It's cheaper. It's high volume. We know some of the advantages, but most people listening to this podcast are truck centric or uh, and say or tech centric. And they say, I don't know too much about it, but I think there's really a big opportunity to do so much more with rail. And I love the idea of the autonomous piece because it's got rails. <laughs> yeah, there, there's so much to unpack here. You know, rail at, at the surface, like it's 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 hard there's enormous opportunity. Like you're absolutely right. And, and the, the railway infrastructure we have is so unique. And for any, you know, any rail operator in the U S that owns the infrastructure, like their number one goal is like, how do I use this? You know, it's a revenue generating asset. How do I use this as much as possible? And at the same time, you know, people who are in the shipping and logistics business, like they're not paying for train rides, you know, they need to get their stuff from A to B and, you know, we see we see opportunity to increase utilization of rail. You know, not just allow rail to serve more markets, but also help 
improve the quality of service of rail. Like, you know, trains are notorious for not being fast. It's like, if I put on a train, it's going to be cheap, but not nearly as fast as, as trucks. And one of the reasons for that is again, because of the scale requires like a period of accumulation. Like some of the you know best case scenarios, like we have this giant Manuel freight train, we'll take a, we'll take pretty much a whole day to unload and load it. And then it leaves where, you know, a truck, you have, you can find a driver, you're, you're loading that truck and you're going uh, within an hour. Yep. And so, you know, what we're doing, our approach is that these smaller vehicles have unit economics that do not have the same sensitivities to scale that rail does. And so, so we, you know, we're able to, to enable smaller terminals, which allows, which allows the action to get closer to where the shippers and customers are which helps reduce the drayage component, which, which is often what limits big limitation for rails being able to serve certain markets. And, and you're leaving multiple times a day. It's not, it's not every minute, you know, it's like every hour, maybe two hours. Right. We're leaving. And, and that's a, that's a big improvement in the quality of service for rail. Yeah. There's, the, you know, it's funny as we, as we have more innovation, it was, as the innovation opens up in certain areas, it changes everything. And I'll, I'll throw this out there is, I, I did. I gave a speech at a, and I, I did a podcast on it too. But I gave a speech at, a, um, I think it was CPIX, and we we're talking about a, a frying pan, how it would go to market, nineteen forty to two thousand forty. And in nineteen forty, those frying pans were all made in Wisconsin skillets. It would have come to Detroit by rail, and then some distrib- would go to a distributor, and the distributor would be a peddler who'd sell to all the department stores. By the 80s, we had expressways. It was the 60s and 70s, we spent a lot of money on expressways and highways. And all of a sudden, the trucking business blew up. My mother moved to Detroit in the 40s uh, from Pennsylvania. There was no way you could drive from Pennsylvania over here. It was, it was not the thing. So they would take the train. So she said, she goes, the idea that you would take a car from Detroit to Pennsylvania would be like, oh, how would you get? There's not even clear roads. So as soon as we built that infrastructure, all of a sudden, a brand new world opened up for us, which was trucking. But it doesn't mean that will always be here. And it doesn't even mean it's best. So it, maybe reinvestment in some of these older technologies or new innovations like you're talking about opens this up to things that we never considered. I'll throw one other thing out there is, is containers ships that change the world. Like the World trade would not exist without container ships. We didn't really use container ships until the f- late 50s, 60s, and it really took off during the Vietnam War. It was so expensive to load and unload ships the way it was that world trade wasn't that easy. If you ever watch old movies where they put things in nets and they're taking things off yeah. of nets, it's it was ridiculous. Things got lost. Things got damaged. Things were stolen by enormous numbers on those in those ports. Um, it was it was a part time business and uh, just theft. And as soon as we got to that container ship, it changed everything. The economics of trade changed. I think the same thing could happen in what you're talking about too, because we get the technologies around. I'll just throw it like you mentioned, drayage. We got to be able to load and unload those containers fast. That's part of it. And I wouldn't be surprised if we end up with robots that are doing that. At least people who are empowered by robots, right? Right. Yeah. It's it's. It's a way. It's a way to improve productivity. But you know, you, you talk about Chicago. Like, there's there's lots and lots of truck traffic generated by our biggest ports here in the U.S. And you know, ports generally prefer 
put as much as possible on rail because rail rail is a very dense way to move freight in and out of ports. But just you know, because of the traditional you know footprint of those operations, they have to be very selective about what what they can accommodate for rail because ports are all land constrained in one way or the other. But this is you know this is something that we hope can help alleviate some of that trucking congestion around some of these 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 ports and uh, urban areas. But this is. You know, this is not going to replace trucking, obviously, but this no. is this is to shift, you know, more of of the mileage from trucking to rail, and then you know, really, we think the the opportunity is to have trucking focus on drayage, which uh, which which we think is is actually helpful for for the trucking industry. I mean, the the retention of of truck drivers doing long haul service is is traditionally been very challenging because even with like. You know, even with like very competitive pay, like the demands of that that job and being on the road, you make it difficult to stay in it. And so we, you know, we'd like to see more of the the medium and long haul stuff shift to to rail, and then trucks can focus on Dre. Yep. So if you guys, I think Boston Consulting Group had a, a some research out that said eighty percent of greenhouse gases come from the supply chain. So the world is looking to us. How are we going to fix this? And one of the areas that uh, we've done much better at, I think, is uh, empty miles. Now, somebody told me that it used to be near 30% and now it's near 20 or just below. That's very difficult to, to measure. But if we can, from you know, just from an environmental perspective, keep lowering those, those empty miles and also start utilizing, not replacing trucks, but, but getting some supply chain plans that maybe involve rail because it is better on the environment. It does have less greenhouse gas. You say, yeah, the, the majority of the majority of from point A to point B was done on rail. And the part that made sense for the truck, we did it with truck. And I guess we should also throw in a uh, final mile now because that's becoming more and more important, but those are going to be electric vehicles, the final mile. I think the, one of the challenges we have right now is trucks as we know it are going to be diesel for a while. We don't have an answer for that. And that is a few percentage of greenhouse gases. I think it's what, 5% maybe just trucking in this business and trucking in, in the U.S. So so it, it, to your point, it's not replacing. It's, hey, how do we how do we put these things together? It went by ship, then it went by rail, then it went by truck. And we already do that for a lot of high volume things. But how do we get that more? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, some of it is obviously introducing new technologies, but a lot of the opportunity, I think, I think some of the biggest impact will be just through you know better coordination of the entire supply chain, because that you know that activity is like an like streamline these things like empty miles as you put put out that that you know when you can coordinate that that's 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 kind of a very big impact. And you're not moving empty boxes all the time. So did you guys? After you decide we're going to do this business, did you start with it's going to be electric or it's going to be autonomous or it's going to be both? What was first? Well, you know, we were looking at this this from the perspective of clean tech, but also logistics and the railroads. And so the railroads, you know, are, are very profitable. The revenue growth, though, is fairly flat. And a lot of the industry observers, you know, as we're, as we're immersing ourselves in this industry, you know, are pointing out it's like rail's path to growth is to do more intermodal. And to take on more medium and, and short haul lanes, but they've essentially picked all the low hanging fruit. Like they're doing like these big, huge intermodal lanes that are going long distances. And, and, and there's a reason why they're doing those is because it's, it's a lot easier to, to do those successfully. And so, 
you know, is, is there understanding like the operational limits for like, okay, what does it take to unlock these, these possibilities? And very often, you know, it's not a matter that the rail isn't there, the network isn't there, you know, it is there. It's that they haven't been able to justify making the investment terminals to serve those markets. And so with our approach, what we're enabling is for terminals to be built, you know, not just smaller and closer to where the action is, but also for lower levels of capital too. So that's, that's one layer, like how we're helping them address this. So did you guys do the, did you guys design uh, an autonomous, autonomous uh, electric car? And then, and then, I mean, when I say car, I don't even know if that's the right word when it's on the rail, but um, did you already design that and then go to VCs or did, did you call VCs first? How'd this all work? Well, I mean, you know, we, we tried to do a deep dive on defining what the problem is. And then we came up with what we thought the solution was. Which, which is, you know, asking ourselves, like, why is the train a train? Like, why does it have to have this big engine that pulls all the stuff and requires big scale? And, you know, we started to kick around this idea of like, well, you know, electrification is getting cheaper, autonomy is getting cheaper. Why not do it this way? And we brought in people who, you know, industry experts who helped us understand the economics and, and value of something like this, like the quality of service. Some, one of our advisors was telling us, like, you know, you guys are focused on the economic story, which, which is looking very good right now. But just improving quality service could be worth even more. So we, you know, we we were trying to surround ourselves with people that could help us understand the true value of this, like what we thought the answer was. Because we we had these principles from the, the early days of like, we're not going to sell this in the virtues, like the economics have got to work. It's got to be a strong case for that. And this is obviously a very dramatic change from how rail has operated for a long, long time. So our, our other philosophy was like, if you're going to step outside that comfort zone, there's got to be major ROI. To, to doing that change. If you're going to change, you know, it can't be incremental. It's got to be a big impact. So, you know, we, we put together this narrative and, and we started pitching it uh, just in actually just the time that the pandemic arrived, became an official thing here. So we started the company in January, 2020, and we got this narrative <laughs> together. So you planned time. on the, you planned on yeah. the pandemic. <laughs> yeah. We, it was like, oh, good. We didn't want this to be too easy. So yeah, let's bring on, bring on the COVID pandemic. So do you have a, a do you have prototypes? Do you guys actually run this down yeah. the track yet? So, you know, we started pitching in March. We closed our seed round in June. And with that seed funding, we built, we started hiring people. We had people lined up who wanted to, to work with us. They're really on board of the mission, excited about, you know, the credibility of the whole thing. And we, with that team, we put together prototypes that are built around some legacy rail car hardware and you know, we brought in um, EV components. We, we, we built these very, very scrappy prototypes within a matter of months after, after getting the team together and closing our first, first round of funding. So who owns those railroad tracks you're on? Yeah, so rail in the U.S. is privately owned. For the most part, it is the rail operator that owns it. But, but there's exceptions to that, especially with short lines. But you know, Class 1 railroads own their rail. So did you have to partner with rail companies or, or, or borrow their tracks or pay them for their tracks? How'd this work? We, we were very lucky that we found a short line in Southern California that had some track that could be made insular. So we're able, for a reasonable rate, we're able to get access to this track. And, and the key here is we had to insulate it from the rest of the network so that it would not have to be something that would be regulated by the FRA. You mean you say insulate? So you mean there's no opportunity for it to crash with another? Track? Yeah, you either you either like disconnect it physically. You can pull out like rail, or you can put derailers on it so that if you did 
you know, you did violate the limits, it would just. So how many miles would you have like a mile or so or how I'm. Uh, we've, we've done more miles than that. I, I can't give you a specific number, but you know, it's, it's, it hasn't, the focus of our testing has not been to put miles on it. That, that's ob- absolutely an important thing to, to right, really at some verify. Point, yeah, yeah. But, but it's, it's really the integration of the different technologies that, that is critical for us right now. So this, this section of track that's insular track, you know, we built these prototypes for, for two reasons. One was that we needed a technology development platform where we can integrate hardware and software to enable these systems. And then number two was we needed to have a way to bring people from industry to come experience this. Right. And, and that, that has been very, very helpful, even more so than I thought. I mean, it's like, yeah. like no matter how many PowerPoint presentations have done, when they come out and see it, it's, they're like, oh, oh, okay. Like, oh, this is way better than I thought. Or like, oh, you're doing it this way. Like, so it's, it's been very successful. You always learn so much between the first and the second prototype. Yeah. It, you know, it's funny, all this stuff that looks so great on your computer. And when you and then when you start making the parts and then it, they all look great. And then you get it all together and go, God, why does yeah. it look like that? <laughs> <What is it? laughs> we we knew this was going to be scrappy. I mean, it's I wouldn't say it's like, you know, paper clips and duct tape, but but it's 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 not at all something that well, yeah, yeah. Um, it sounds like you got a smart team there. If you guys can put rockets in space, I'm sure you can do this. <laughs> yeah. Well we're we're excited because we're working on our second generation vehicle right now. We've been cutting steel since August actually. And so this is our first ground up vehicle. So this is this is a much bigger step towards uh the final vision. We we're also acknowledging as like, hey, we're gonna still learn a lot. So you know we want to, we have a third vehicle on our roadmap that, that is going to be our first shot at incorporating those lessons learned and things that we've just tabled for now. It's like where powertrain is, is not optimized in many ways. We're using a, we're building a steel weldment versus a, a casted chassis, uh, which is going to be a central step for, for cost reduction of that, that primary structure. But this is, this is a big stepping stone for us. It's much more compact, much more integrated. And this is what we're going to do really some of our more involved testing programs around. So who will your customer be? Will it be the rail companies or, or? Yeah. It, yeah. At least here in the U S you know, which is where we're focused. We're not, we're not limiting this to the U S but we're, we're, we're focused on this market right now. Our customers would be the railroads. So we would give them the tools to, to, to enable this type of service and operate this service. So we would, we would provide them the vehicles, but, but also the software that allows you know the vehicles, of course, to operate, but also to integrate into their back office systems. A lot of people look at what we're doing and think, "Oh, this is a hardware company," and that's true. We are doing hardware, but but much more than the hardware is the software. There's a there's a tremendous always amount of always right. Yeah. So this will enable them to save some money. It sounds like, and further reduce their the pollution. Will it also enable them to grow their sales, like via? more use more using some of those short lines absolutely i mean that that's number one goal number one is is not to just take what they're doing and make it a little bit better it's you know what keep doing those legacy operations but let's let's go after some of this trucking volume that is that has been out, out of reach so, to date so you said when we were prepping you said something about class a rail and then we talked about short lines could you explain all those just for people who don't do rail every day uh, class one railroads are, are some of the biggest railroads in the U S I can't remember the exact threshold, but it, it basically comes down to how much revenue they make. So the primary operators in the U S are union Pacific, NSF, Kansas city, Southern and Norfolk Southern and CSX on the East coast. And then you have Canadian national Canadian Pacific. 
in Canada that have that have rail in the U.S. and then you have Ferromex in Mexico. Those are those are basically the freight class one railroads. I think the threshold is a it's like a little less than like five hundred million dollars of revenue per year. And then you have on the other end you have short line railroads, class three railroads that are operating some of these these spurs to you know sometimes supply class ones. They will they will basically do the switching to collect some of this freight and then bring it to these, these hubs for class ones to move over the network, or they're just, they're just doing switching within these like local industrial parks. So that might be something like, I'm just make this up as I go along. If some say you're going from the East coast to the West coast, and let's just say you're going through Michigan, you wouldn't necessarily have a class one going up to Northern Michigan. So you might have a spur that comes down. Well, you might, there's a lot of iron ore up there. You might, so you might have a spur that goes into a little area that's, the short line would be 50, 100 miles or even, you know, even right. more to pick up some that doesn't justify that class one. Yeah. Yeah. The class ones are, are very focused on the high volume, long length and short lines pick up the pieces. So by using what you guys have, we can potentially put a whole bunch of class one, I mean, not class one, these uh, short lines back to work. And because those are the ones you normally, when you're walking around in the woods, you go, Look at these old railroad tracks. No, and there's never a train goes through, or by factories that you've old factories always have lots of railroads near them. Yeah, yeah. I mean the 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 investment that happens in rail is is generally related to how much activity is happening on it. So a lot of these short lines are not you know in the greatest always the greatest state, but this is something that can drive more activity. And we you know we're focused on inter, intermodal right now, but this is not at all limited to intermodal. We've had a lot of people especially from the rail industry, it's been one of my biggest surprises is how eager they are to look at using this for non-intermodal things like moving grain or, or moving paper or lumber. Yeah. So the bulk, the bulk stuff. Bulk stuff. Yeah. I mean, we, we've had, you know, when we, you know, we, we shared with people what we're doing, like we've had, we had a lot of reach out, like we had people, you know, these are operators, not, not railroads. These are, these are customers who, you know, they want, they've got 10 miles of track that's in their backyard. They would love to just move the lumber between their mill and the distribution facility over rail rather than continue to truck it over roads. And, you know, they've even looked at rail. It's like we, we looked at making the, the upgrade in the track. We looked at like buying a locomotive. It's just like we couldn't make the economics work because it's, it's just not enough volume. It's too small. But, you know, that, but what's crazy to me, and this is how I feel about all of this stuff is, once you start going down this track, somebody start down the track, down this path, there will be, you know, if there will be new technologies developed. And for a long time, robots weren't, they were fun. You go into a factory and go, oh, it'd be fun if we could have a robot do this. Ha ha. Right. But the economics never worked. It was cheaper to have a guy. Well, the cost of robotics, the cost of automation just keeps coming lower and lower. I'm doing a podcast coming up on RFID. RFID was something we talked about forever. But never used or seldom used. It had to be a specific product. Same with chips. Everything is the price comes down as there's a market develops. Uh, you get money and money coming after it. So, so there, I think you guys are the uh, the innovators that people will follow and say, yeah, we'll invest around this because there's an opportunity. Yeah, yeah. So, anyway, so when do you hope to when do you hope to start to actually? you guys aren't aren't selling these yet when do you hope to sell your first ones it's 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 hard to put a firm target on that i mean we think we need a couple more years to really refine the technology and, and continue building relationships with with people in the industry 
but that's, you know, that's probably like the best, best approximate target I could give, like, you know, maybe 2025. It just seems like it's going to happen though. I mean, that's the, it, when you, as soon as I read about this, I was like, of course this is going to happen. And I love the idea that you're, I think autonomous vehicles will learn from autonomous rail. I mean, it, it's a different set of, of problems. I mean, I, I think self-driving cars and trucks are absolutely coming. It's, it's, it's harder work and they, they will get there. You know, we think even, even in that future state, like rail has real advantages over just solving all of our freight needs of self-driving, more energy efficient trucks. It's like, there's a real burden that's placed on infrastructure by trucks and you can't overlook the energy efficiency again, like going back to, you know, the basics. It's like we're, you know, for electric truck versus what we're doing, like we're a quarter the size of the battery. That's a cheaper battery. It's less energy. It's it's always going to have an economic advantage. Yep. Guys, I think if uh, you're listening, you're more of a trucking guy, you're going to, you're going to need to educate yourself on, on trucking because again, it is cleaner. It is less expensive. It does get rid of that congestion. And congestion is such a pain in the ass in a lot of places. I live in the Detroit metro area. We're pretty spread out here. We're not a big downtown type city, uh, but it's a pain sometimes when you want to go somewhere and you're in that congestion. It'd be nice if we could move more and more stuff off to the rails. So talk a little bit about some of the challenges you guys had from when you started till now. I know being during COVID, but talk about some of those uh, learning curves. Yeah, I mean, COVID was was certainly a thing in the early fundraising days, but you know, I, I think one of the challenges we had from the beginning was that so many people don't know much about rail beyond that's a train, right? It's even in childhood, right? Like there's a lot of toys and stories. Oh, I'm, I'm with you. I'm trains. with you. And so, you know, educating people on what this opportunity was, how rail works today, how it could work in the future, getting that narrative down was was a lot of effort. And and for some investors are like, you know what, they even said it's like, you guys seem like you're really onto something, seem like a great team. I don't have enough time to get smart enough on this industry to make a decision. So there is, you know, this door is closed because of that. And, you know, that, that continues to be a topic that, that we have to work hard at because, um, you know, as we've gone more public with this too, people have some strong emotions about trains. Like they're, they're, they're sacred to some people, like people are very passionate about them. And, and, um, you know, we have to, it's like, yeah, we're not, but they're not, but they're not using them. <laughs> yeah. 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 But so I, I think explaining there is that the romance about it. <laughs> yeah. Which I get, I, I totally get that. But, you know, we, we've had some misconceptions, you know, I, I talked about the efficiency that was, that was surprising to me. It's not everyone. You know, a lot of people do see that rail is efficient. It's not because of the giant locomotives, it's physics, but, but there's a, a surprise how many people have that, that notion that it's because of the, the architecture, not because of lower rolling resistance and aerodynamics. But, you know, we are, we're developing technology for an industry that is well known for not changing a whole lot. And so that, you know, that, that's been a headwind. But I, I would say, though, that, you know, as we talked to industry, the responses exceeded our expectations. But but they're they're not known for for moving fast. But we've we've um, I'd say we have our plates full right now with what's what's in front of us to execute. And, and a lot of railroads, you know, even though they didn't necessarily want to work with us, you know, generally the response was, you know, what uh, keep us posted, let us know how this goes, and 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 um, you know they want to see it de-risked. Of course they do. Of course they do. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting though. You mentioned people not knowing about it and it also being an industry not, where nothing changed. I remember when I was young in my twenties, coffee, people were drinking a lot less coffee 
And there was a sense by the coffee industry that the only way to make money in the coffee business was to lower your costs. So coffee got cheaper and worse, cheaper and worse. And they said, no one will pay more than 25 cents or 50 cents for a cup of coffee. And then the Starbucks guys just came in and said, coffee is going to be five bucks a cup and you're going to love it. And it's an experience. You're like, it's not an experience. It's coffee, right? Well, now the norm is premium coffee, right? Phones are the same way. I joke about this all the time is there was nothing that was less sexy and interesting and low tech than the phone. I don't even know you could buy them. I think you you got the service and they just gave you one. The, yeah. the, old, the old landlines. And then all of a sudden we we started spending on that space. And now people sleep in the streets for the new phone. I don't get that, but they do it. Trucking. Nobody would ever consider spending on tech for trucking until it became the only way you could stay in business. Yeah, Warehousing. Warehousing just a few years ago felt very behind the times in my mind. Now every warehouse is is a high tech a high tech hub. So it, it what you're talking about, I think you guys are maybe just the first there first people there, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's people right behind you saying, "Yeah, we're going to we're going to turn this industry upside down." Well, wrong way to say it. We're going we're going to upgrade this industry. Yeah, yeah, we we want to work with people, but I I think, you know, to your point, you know, I, I think in this industry probably unlikely that you'll pay, you know, for like a cool factor or like, you know, like the, the virtues of like something cool, right? Because like we we're saying earlier, it's like people are not paying for a truck trip or a train ride. It's like, I need to get my stuff to, to my customer. But, but I think what, what is maybe kind of like the leap that we need to help people make is, you know, pretty much everything looks more complicated than a train on the surface, right? That like the bar is like very low there. It's like, it's hard to beat like the cheap rolling stock that the industry uses for years and years and years. But, you know, that upfront cost is only part of the equation. It's, it's what is, what is the lifetime revenue? What is the utilization we get out of this equipment that, that can get us to a better future state? It's like a lot of rolling stock spends a lot of its life just not moving. And, and what we're, what we're building is very, very different because we're not gated by the availability of power, you know, locomotive, uh, we're not gated by the availability of a crew, you know, Railroad engineers and conductors have work limits just like truck drivers do. Um, and so those are real factors that that influence the, the utilization of equipment. And utilization is such an important factor when you look at the overall economics of something. Yep. I can, I can say this is like, you know, when I worked in automotive and I suspect it was this way with some of the companies you worked at. Keeping those plants, when you spend that much money on the equipment and the people to develop, to develop cars... The utilization, you, everybody's worried about how much I'm running my plant. The trucks, truck, the trucking business or the train business is no different. No sense spending hundreds of thousands of dollars. Maybe I don't know what a tr tr one of those cars costs, but it costs a lot of money. It, you don't get paid for it when it's sitting um, by the side of the rail. So anyway, I, I went well past your time. I appreciate you taking the time. And uh, But Matt, this is really cool. I, I love what you're doing. And uh, one last thing. Do you ever see this, uh, this, your company getting involved with passenger stuff, or is this at this point you're just focused on the transportation side? We're we're just super focused on freight right now. I mean, we do get that question from time to time. It's not something we've we've candidly looked into, but who knows? It's 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 interesting. There's very few places in the U.S. where people really want to take the rail. I mean, and I, I've done it. it it's not uh, not what we're used to. I think there's a real opportunity on this side, though. This is still a great business. 
And yeah, this is, congratulations on really having that open mind and chasing something down like this. Because again, this this is this is this is really can change a whole industry. It changes really the whole landscape, you know, because the highways did it. The rails did it first. Then the highways did it. Then we had the internet. Now, now you're starting to say, okay, maybe the rail can go a little further. Maybe it won't be yesterday's news. And, and wrong way to say that. A lot of, in a lot of people's mind, it's yesterday's news. It's all about trucking now, but maybe we can bring some of this back to rail if that makes sense. Yeah, we want to we wanna energize the industry and help them drive up utilization. Yeah, change those perceptions and get uh, people saying, you know, again, legitimate uh, option. Every once in a while, I would say when I was running a third-party logistic, well, maybe we could look at train, rail. But it was not an easy, it was not easy to get that. You had to kind of convince them that it was good for them. Yeah. We got we to gotta open that market back up. Matt, thank you so much. What I'll do is I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile. I'll put a link to your company. You give it to me. And uh, if, do you have any videos or anything that we can see yet? Or is this still all stealth? We have a couple videos of us testing some things, our, our first generation prototypes. If if you feel comfortable, please give me a link and I'll put it in the show notes so people can look and see what you're, you and your team are building. And uh, this is fantastic. I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah. Thank you very much, Joe. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And thank all of you for being a, for listening to my podcast. Your support is very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversation with experts in the logistics field. For more details, visit thelogisticsoflogistics.com or follow Joe Lynch on LinkedIn.